You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to the show. Today we have much discussion about midwifery and maternity services. Mark interviews Maureen Treadwell of the Birth Trauma Association and I chat with mumologist Emma Swanberg. This is episode 51 of Sprogcast. I'm Karen Hall and he's Mark Harris. How's the world been treating you, Karen? It's pretty good. I've had a fairly quiet week. Right. And what does a quiet week mean for you? Um, it means there's enough enough time left over to go and do a couple of home visits for breastfeeding mothers, which I don't get to do very often. Right. Do they usually take quite a long time? You need at least an hour. Two questions. What would lead to you thinking a home visit was appropriate, you know, that you couldn't do it over the phone? And what kind of things come up in a home visit? That's quite hard to put a finger on, actually. I, a lot of the time I will signpost to the peer supporters at our social groups locally. And that's enough. Um, sometimes it's a phone call. And yeah, occasionally you just you read an email or you listen to someone on the phone and you think, I'm going to need to come and see you. And then you go. Or people will ask, can you visit me? And a lot of the time I actually have to say no because I simply don't have time to do it. Right. I, I'm guessing that uh, being face to face with uh, a woman uh, is, is far better than any kind of phone conversation. In some situations, but a lot of the time a phone conversation is all that is necessary. People have a lot of doubts and anxieties. It's not always a, a physical thing that you're trying to help with. No, all right. So, so what? thinking of the two visits you did last week, um, what was some of what some of the issues that were coming up that you were able to physically offer support? Um, I, I obviously can't talk about those two specific visits. Oh no, I know you can't. Generally, the sorts of things would be, you know, if if I can tell, there's there's a lot of anxiety um, when it's a, a a real tricky physical thing with um, the baby not latching or pain, those sorts of things. That's what I would usually go out for. Yeah, and I'm guessing that there's a a fairly uh, consistent uh, stream of issues that come up in that regard, like, you know, like positioning issues and stuff like that. Yeah, two two main themes would be um, anxiety and worries about things that are actually fairly normal or common at least, um, and and the, the physical act of getting a baby to latch on. Yeah, that that's just my stream, I think, because a lot of things will go either to the peer supporters because they're more general um, and not not too tricky, or they're much more difficult and they'll go to a lactation consultant. Yeah, and a peer supporter can maybe has more time available to sit with a woman while she's feeding. Yeah, and they're wide, widely available because you know locally we have them at every NCT social group. Yeah, well, you're lucky then, aren't you? Yes, we are. <laughs> this is a new situation over the last couple of years. This is what's emerged, is that we now have bundles of peer supporters. Yeah, well, it didn't happen by accident, Karen. No, no. We uh, The NCT branches raised a lot of money and we did some training. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and of course, there's nothing to stop to stop NCT groups throughout the country doing that. And I'm assuming they are. Well, it's raising the money to pay for it. That's the challenge. Yeah. What kind of... What kind of notes are we talking about what kind of money oh, are we God, talking about know. in order <laughs> i don't get involved in that stuff i just turn up and do the training 
All right. Fair enough. Fair enough, Karen. It's all on our website, nct.org.uk. Anyway, how's your week been? Very good. I got back from Spain because we went to Calador in Mallorca for a week, which was amazing. Oh, um, it was lovely. It's a beach holiday, effectively. You know, we don't, sadly, we if we're going to a place to explore the place, we would make a very different choice than if we were going to just sit on a beach. Mm-hmm. So, so we did go just to sit on a beach. So it was um, delightful. Good weather the whole week. I did come back with a chest infection. That's not great. No, but it's okay because I'm feeling better now. Getting ready to jet off to Belfast tomorrow evening. Right. Excited about that. Although I am in trouble because I've double booked. I was meant to be at a conference on one of the days I'm in Belfast. So I've been told off Oopsie. quite thoroughly. And I'm really disappointed that I've uh, messed up the dates because I wanted to go. Uh, I love the birth community in Pool. It's quite a big one and a thriving one. So... There you go. The first order of the day is to mention our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction. And they're at pinterandmartin.com. Oh, it's worth mentioning that when you check out, if you check out with Sprogcast, you get 10% discount. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash sprogcast, uh, where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts, and other exciting rewards. Uh, you can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month, though if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. And five dollars gets you a t-shirt. Eventually. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> those last two, those last two went out within a couple of days. Thank you. And they they should have got them and already have posted a picture wearing them. Oh, I have not seen that yet. No, well, they haven't done it yet. So get on to it. And we also put additional content on Patreon. So um, at the moment, we've got an interview with Jane Simpson, who is the author of The Pelvic Floor Bible, which um, is a book that is much more interesting than it sounds. And the interview is particularly fun to do. Ooh. It's about doing your squeezes. Ooh, a whole book on that. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote a whole book about men. Just pelvic floor. It's a bit more specific. It'd be like doing a whole book on their testicles. No, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. That's ridiculous because men have pelvic floors too. Right. So it is important if men have it as well. Yeah. No. Oh, God. Don't <laughs> start. No, I wasn't saying that at all. It just seems a very specific area to do a whole book on. She's uh, got a lot of expertise. Wow. And and I'm assuming because it's on our Patreon page, it's a bit longer interview. Um, It's a standard interview. We just didn't. Um, We've got plans for the next few episodes and I didn't want to sit on it for three months. Sit on it. Ha ha ha. Pun intended. Ha ha ha. We need to get it out there then. So... Uh, certainly um, want people to hear that. Yeah, it's on Patreon now. All right. Are you going to mention some Patreons? No, we haven't got any new ones. Oh, no new Patreons. Come on. Imagine our sad faces. <laughs> now, I've got I've got to introduce the topic, maternity services. Yes, you interviewed Maureen Treadwell. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Very excited about Maureen Treadwell. Treadwell, to be honest. Um, We made a bit of a connection on Twitter. 
you'll find out she's the head of Birth Trauma Association um, in the UK and also heads up um, some new stuff that she talks about in the interview. Um, I, I really enjoyed this interview. Mm-hmm. What, what in particular did you enjoy about it? I was a little bit tentative about doing it because, you know, I know given that I do three-step rewind training, there's quite a lot of hostility towards um, the process uh, in in the community that is dealing with uh, birth trauma. So I, I wasn't sure uh, how the interview would go. But I have to say, first of all, I don't do many interviews. You, you hog them all. That's right. So it was nice to be doing my own interview, you know. But but then she's such a delightful woman with such a breadth of uh, insight about uh, well all the stuff that she's dealing with. I, I hope the interview comes over well in that regard. Well, thank you, Maureen, for being willing to talk to us at Sprocast. Absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed that we've been going three years and we haven't spoken yet. Well, never too late, never too early, so <laughs> let's crack on. Thank you very much. Maureen, could you start by just introducing yourself and saying a little bit about your background and what you're doing, what you're doing at the minute? Yes, well, um, the, I, I've been with the Birth Trauma Association since its inception, uh, and myself and uh, a human right, rights lawyer, Debbie Sayers, started the BTA in about 2004, roughly that time. So wow. we've been going for a number of years. Yeah. But I've been involved in maternity services since I had my two children um, as a counsellor. I was a local counsellor. And of course, having babies on, or well, I had one baby and I, I just had a baby when I first became elected, but having babies on the council, I got all things maternity coming my way. <laughs> so that's how I originally got involved with it. And, and there were quite a few things that I was really worried about, about maternity services. Yeah. And one of the things about anything in local government or politics is that you have a little nibble at different you know, a bit, a bit of planning, a bit of sewers, but you don't get your teeth into anything. Right. And right. I really felt this is the area that I'm really passionate about, and I would like to get my teeth into it and really do some work in that area. So you've been you've you've been doing work in the area of um, women and their partners that ex experience a birth that they consider traumatic for quite a long time. Well, unfortunately, it's over 40, uh, thir no, over 30 years, or well, not 40 years, over 30 years, yes. My goodness, 30. It's a long time, Maureen. You, you must have seen some changes in the service. I've seen some changes, but some things haven't changed that I would still like to see change. Go on, tell me about that. What? Well... <laughs> As a birthing for blokes chap, I'd like to say the recognition that obstetrics, maternity services are not just about women. Yeah. It's about the fam it's about the whole family and the impact on partners. Um, it's it's becoming gradually more about 
their choices. It's ultimately anything to do with the actual birth, I think, must be the woman's choice because it is her body. In that, in that sense, you know, that, that bit is definitely the woman. But you've got to look wider than that because having a baby impacts far more than just the woman. So there are other issues. And I think gradually we're beginning to see a bit of acceptance of that now. Yeah, I think so. Mark Williams is doing a lot of good work in Wales. He's fantastic, isn't he? Yes. I, I suppose I have a little bit of a reservation only because, you know, if you look at the uh, 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 the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths and at 12 months, you know, death post mental health issues following birth is still the highest cause of death amongst women. And, and I wonder, we're not really doing a fantastic job for women, are we? We're not doing a fantastic job for both both men and women, I would say. Predominantly, it's women, definitely. And a lot of the problems that are arising with women, I think, are to do with the kind of care they got intrapartum and antenatally and postpartum if we they are a consequence of what happened to them beforehand and I think there's been a tendency to look for you know has this woman got you know a, a tendency to anxiety has she got various um, traits that will make her predisposed to perhaps PTSD following childbirth and not say well hang on a minute PTSD only arises if you've experienced a traumatic event. What was it and what can we do about childbirth to make that event not have been traumatic? Yeah, I, I mean, there is some evidence that a woman that has experienced early life trauma is kind of five times more likely to have PTSD following birth. It's, have you Have you seen that? I have indeed. I'm actually the research officer for the Birth Trauma Association. Oh, and you? I've seen of course that. you've seen it then. And every time I say, yes, but most, the women who have experienced severe trauma in their child, in their childhood or earlier life are actually not the majority. No. Quite a, quite a small number have experienced severe PTSD in their prior. When you look at the vast swathe of women, the commonest, the commonest cause is intrapartum and sometimes antenatal events that led to complex intrapartum events. So it's not just, we don't look at soldiers, do we? We don't look at soldiers who develop PTSD and say, well, that one didn't get it and he had the same experience. What's wrong with that soldier? We acknowledge that they oh. have been through a traumatic experience. And I think we need to start doing that with women. If a woman is saying the birth was traumatic and as a consequence of that, I am traumatized, we need to start accepting that and not looking at her personality traits, which she can't change, or her prior experience, which she can't change. I, I hear what you're saying. In fact, that's a very powerful analogy, Maureen. You, you know, there's, there's no, you know, we don't question the experience of a soldier. No, no, we, we don't, we, do we? We just assume that it was environmental factors that were contributors. Yeah, exactly. And yes. in fact, when you say, you know, when you talk about PTSD, people think of veterans. No, the commonest cause of PTSD for women is childbirth. In fact, yeah. there's far more women 
walking around with PTSD as a consequence of childbirth than there are veterans walking around yeah. with PTSD. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I often say in the workshops that I do that women and their partners are living inside the experience of the story they tell themselves about birth. Yes. And, and that story is so influenced by the care they received. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Mark. Absolutely. Right. No healthcare professional sets out to provide bad care. And I often think that, you know, when we talk about PTSD, midwives or doctors feel criticised. No, absolutely they shouldn't, because none of them intend to provide poor care. It's a consequence of training. Some of the things I think with training are not right, and we need to change them. I think we need certainly to look at the systemic factors, you know, that poor doctor that was taken, you know, I think she was charged with manslaughter or yeah, she was from actually, yeah. yes, when she was first day on duty and massively understaffed. That's not fair. So we have to look at systemic things as well and, um, you know, work towards doctors and midwives feeling they're delivering a good service for women and women not feeling traumatised, feeling as though they've had a, you know, good care throughout pregnancy and labour. I, I mean, I, I worked for about 17 years within the NHS and um, certainly back then there was more work than than we could cope with. Yeah, so, you which know, got so worse, we, hasn't it? <laughs> I, I would say I did a return to practice about eight years ago and the intensity of the work environment had definitely increased. And And to be frank... Maureen, I, I think my own mental health was under threat by that environment because that yeah. desperate desire to offer really quality, kind, sensitive care yeah. was constantly under threat because of the demands upon me. And, you know, we know that from research. If you are under pressure and feeling sort of not cared for yourself by your employer, you will bat that down the line. So I think we have to look at the systemic factors. And as we know, politicians will always say there's not the money to improve care. But you look at the litigation bill. Oh, yes, there is the money there and we're wasting it on litigation. And it's a short-sighted view that says that, isn't it? You Absolutely. Know, if, you think, if you think about the ongoing care requirements of someone who's suffering a trauma, yeah. You know. Although I was looking at data, I think from your website, uh, did I read something like 200,000 uh, women a year would identify their birth experience as traumatic? Yeah, but that's not to say they have PTSD. No, no, I understand. Barely 10% will end that's up how with they a... would apply their experience. Yeah, yeah whatever, which is what... really sad. That's one in three women. Yeah, and, and what, whatever a woman... Well, it's actually it's a little bit less than one in three, a little bit less than one in three. Yeah. But, but going, on for, going on for that figure. Yeah, I mean, whatever, in my opinion anyway, Maureen, whatever a woman uh, says her experience is, is what she perceives it to be. So yes. if, if a woman and her partner are saying they were traumatised, that's enough. They don't need a diagnosis as far as I'm concerned in, in that yes. sense. And what we need to do is look at the nuggets of 
the little nuggets of behaviour, staff behaviours, environmental factors that contributed to that trauma because we know there are lots of things that we could do to change it and reduce it. Yeah, you mentioned training changes. Have you, have you got some things in mind? Uh, well, let me give you an example. Everybody says communication is a factor. Well, we know that, and then guidelines come down and they, they reel off good communication. But healthcare professionals don't go out intending to communicate badly. They need precise examples. And let me give you an example. One of the commonest uh, for women who have, let's say, catastrophic hemorrhage. Do you know the kind where it's like a tap? The real horrendous ones. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Often healthcare professionals naturally reflect a bit of panic themselves when they see that. And the bells and buzzers, the, the experience for the woman is a lot of bell, kerfuffle and bells and buzzers and people rushing yeah. around. And no one allocated, certainly in the cases we've seen, I mean, it may happen in some hospitals, but no one specifically allocated to talk to the woman and the partner and say, this is something that does happen. We've got brilliant protocols in, in place to sort this out. Just just relax, we're on the case, we're sorted out and we'll see, you know, sort of see you later. Some reassurance. And I know healthcare professionals can never say you'll be all right. No. Because in that situation, you can't be certain. Yeah. But at least to talk to the woman because she will be fading. She will be losing her yeah. bearing and panicking. I mean, that's catastrophic hemorrhage makes people feel panicky. And the and and making sure that someone is specifically allocated. Now, if we said to every hospital, "You must do this. You must make sure when a woman is having a hemorrhage, even not a you know a catastrophic one, there is somebody allocated to explain that they're in good hands, that it's the bells and buzzers are only to make sure they're safe." Do you see what I mean about being specific about the nuggets? I, I do, and and the, the level of specificity i think i think you're right it's important there's something inside me that says uh, surely a, a midwife would intuitively do that i mean i, I would. think if you've got yes you would <laughs> i'm sure you would <laughs> but in a lot of cases they're understaffed and the, the panic is to save the woman's life and as a consequence the woman is actually the one who's left. And that's, they're the cases we get. The good cases where they get that support, we probably don't see. But we see the ones where that doesn't happen. I, I understand that. And, of course, that, that extrapolates a little bit to the partner and other birth supporters in the room, doesn't it? We had a gentleman whose wife had a catastrophic hemorrhage. The last he saw of her, this was antepartum, uh, last he saw, well, it was in it was interpartum catastrophic hemorrhage. Yeah, was her being reeled down the corridor in? He said what looked like a war zone, and nobody spoke. I think it was. I'm not sure about the exact time. It's something like an hour and a half. I might be wrong on the exact time. It was a huge amount of time, and he said, "I stood there for an hour and a half, thinking the woman I love and my baby had died." 
and nobody told me they were both fine. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. It's awful. Yeah. Well, I, I me and Karen, she's the producer of Sprogcast. We we do talk about these kind of things on a regular basis, and and I do find myself getting heartache about it. It is. It's sad because I, I think if we could have a really good dialogue about not the generalities, not the communicate better, but the specifics. And I can remember doing some, we did a conference and we came out with a list of these specifics and there were absolutely, because, you know, midwives and doctors who go to conferences of their own volition are the good ones. And they sat there and said, oh, my goodness, we do that. We do that. Well, the, the minute you, you give specifics in terms of actions that will occur in the world, um, it's more likely that those actions will actually happen. Yes. You, you know, if you leave it general, there's, there's kind of nothing that our brain and neurology can kind of connect yes. with. So I think that's, that's very, very important, Maureen. Could you, could you move on to say a bit about your work with Maternity Outcomes Matter? Because I appreciate I'm I taking can a, a lot of your time, but I particularly would love to talk about Maternity Outcomes Matter. Okay. I think it's fair to say that the birth world does tend towards polarisation, doesn't it? it? It definitely does, and that's a real shame. I think we've got to... It's a bit like Brexit, Mark, isn't it? Oh, God. It that. is. People have very <laughs> entrenched views. They and do. actually, we've got to say there are, you know, you, you have the sort of natural birth, I want to give birth at home, and really good arguments for that and some arguments against. And then you have the women who are adamant they want a cesarean. Actually, really good arguments for that, but some yeah. against. Yeah. And we have to accept that people... When they come, when they're of an age where they're having children, have a lot of life experience and views and values, and that we're all different. So you can't yeah. provide one set of evidence and expect everybody to make the same decision based on that evidence. Well, we need I, to make sure people do get the right evidence. But after that, you'll be surprised how different people, you know, what different decisions people will make. We just have to accept that. What does matter is that at the end of the day, the woman is confident that she's feeling supported in what she has chosen. So tell me about maternity outcome matters. Right. When we set the Birth Trauma Association up, we were primarily for, for um, women and families who'd had traumatic experiences in childbirth. And there wasn't an outlet for them to talk to them or for them to get support. So we ended up with this brilliant Facebook group with, oh, thousands. We've got over 7,000 members now. It's really big. And so you can go on there any time of day and night and within sort of five minutes, you know, 11 o'clock at night when you put the baby to bed or something and you're feeling really low, go on there and there'll be somebody who'll say, that happened to me as well. Oh, I've, I've had that feeling. Love and hugs. Chris. And sometimes little things like that just give you enough lift to get you through the moment. So we had this really good group going. But interspersed within that were some f families who'd, um, you know, had a terrible traumatic birth, but also lost the baby. Or the woman who's had a colostomy 
as a result of the birth. And the effect of that we could see was that women were starting to write posts like, I don't think really I've got anything to complain about because my baby's all right. And we thought, ah, there's a problem here. Definitely. We didn't want those women to be silenced. So what we've done now is to sort of have slightly parallel but separate groups for the women who have um, adverse, really adverse outcomes as well as the trauma. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're sort of a more on the campaigning side to reduce because that that is very cathartic, I think, for people who've had something terribly go wrong so yeah. terribly. And there was a problem with the care and it could have been prevented. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost something that so many people want to do. So I deal with that side of it. You know, the, the women who've had women and fathers and partners, because they're not, you know, can be um, not necessarily fathers. Um, and we work with them to see what we can do by working collectively with other charities involved with adverse outcomes to see if we can change care and reduce the incidence of these adverse outcomes. It is early stage with Mums Project, and we've had fantastic help from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. They've been amazing, and we've got a really strong board. So we're hoping to be able to bring some changes to care. Yeah, I've had a look at your page, and um, I've linked to your blog. Lots of good information there. I mean, there are some key facts that are quite startling. Uh, on your page, 60% of term antipartum stillbirths are potentially avoidable. Yeah, equating exactly. to approximately 600 babies that could be saved each year. Yeah. And when you look at the stats, you know, you, there is a danger of saying, well, it's a small percentage. But then you, when you realise that it's 15 babies a day, I think. Yeah. Um, that's staggering. And I think what is important to understand with this, and it goes back to choice, that, for instance, if we look at home birth and first-time mothers, there is a small increased risk of um, an adverse outcome if you have a home birth with um, your first baby, particularly if you're an older mum, you know, all sorts of other factors. Now, that increase in risk is very 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 tiny yeah what you find is that people who you know it sometimes comes from healthcare professionals who will say oh yeah but the risk is tiny and we we would sort of like people to say well hang on some people will say any risk that is a risk i don't need to take is enormous and other yeah. people will say Oh, my goodness, it's so vanishingly small, I can ignore it. But you mustn't press people on that decision. No. You sometimes get midwives who are very keen on home birth, and we think, ooh. Because what happens is that families will describe themselves as bounced into a home birth or bounced into an option that they themselves would not have taken. And then you get this situation where... They're bitter. Do you know what I mean? They, I they sort of feel, I wouldn't have done that if I'd have been better informed or if I hadn't have been persuaded. So it's so important for the information to be sort of hands off. 
this is your decision. It's tricky, isn't it, Maureen, in terms of communicating information? Oh, because it, it, it's, it's very difficult to be communicating in such a way that none of your bias leaks out. I know. Yes, it's incredibly difficult. And, it, and I think one of the areas that you need to, or that the health service needs to be much more careful about, is that they have their, not just the evidence validated, but the pre presentation yes. of the evidence validated by people who are expert at um, linguistic communication. Because Absolutely. I've seen documents from some hospitals, which is clearly very anti-home birth. Yeah. And the presentation is completely different to one, say, that from the West Country, where they seem to be quite keen on home birth. And yeah. you think, you know, this would persuade people one way or the other. Yeah. And we've got to get got to get better at, as far as we human, humanly can, getting that bias out of the information we present. Yeah. Well, that's a great place, I think, to, to leave the interview. Thank you for giving me so much time, Maureen. It's been a pleasure. Hey, before really you go. I enjoyed talking to you. And you, Maureen. I'd like to talk to you again. But before you go, would you, is there anything you want our listeners to do? Is there any place you want them to go? Uh, how can they uh, find your work if they want to uh, read a bit more? Well, obviously, um, the Birth Trauma Association main website for PTSD or the Maternity Outcomes Matter for families who have, you know, suffered an adverse outcome. If you're interested in campaigning to improve services, we'd love to have your support. There's a Facebook group as well. Um, but and, and also anybody who's involved with a charity in adverse outcomes, we've got quite a few already with us, but we're always looking you know, for extra charities so that all the adverse outcome charities can work together and collaborate and basically augment our voice, you know, yeah. in, increase the power of our voice in, in getting maternity services improved. Yeah, because we're always going to be able to do more together, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one voice is coming out as a strong theme of this interview, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Lovely to speak to you, Mark. Take care. I do hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, speaking to the listeners now. Uh, I know you quite liked it, Karen. Yeah, and it was interesting um, having a listen to somebody from a different perspective than we normally cover on this show. There, there was an aspect of the interview that blew me away, and I've actually used... Uh, what Maureen said uh, on more than one occasion since you know you know often a stat that is brought up about trauma in the context of birth is that um, if a woman experiences early life trauma uh, she is five times more likely to have PTSD post a birth, post a birth experience and and if you notice in the interview Maureen really um, checks me in that regard and what she what she said blew me away. She said, "Well, well, hold on a minute. You see, the inference from that stat, you know, and she's not denying the stat, is that all of the birth trauma out there is due to women having a predisposition towards being traumatized. It kind of, in a way, is subtly negating the influence of the environment upon the trauma." 
Hmm. She said, now, if, if we had people coming back from battlefields and we were making the point that a soldier that gets PTSD is five times more likely to get it if they've had early life trauma... You know, we we wouldn't we wouldn't then say, oh well, it can't be the environment, then, would we? Indeed, because it's a battlefield, right? And I thought, oh my goodness, she is so right. You know that that if we if we give the same attention to our environments around birth and acknowledge that at least some of the the influences upon women being traumatized has to do with the environment. You know, we might be in a better place in terms of seeing those environments change. Yeah, totally. And it's, as we often comment, that we can't take a reductive view of something like this. The causation is going to be complex. Yeah, and un- and com- and completely untraceable in terms of real cause and effect be- because of the amount of variables that are involved. You know, the very fact that, you know, one woman with her life experience and her patterns of behaving uh, has an experience that seems similar to another woman that has different lifestyles and patterns of behaving. One woman experiences what she considers trauma and the other one doesn't. The variables are so compounded that we'll never find, a, a you know, an exact cause and effect, even if we um, even if we tried. But we can look at those kind of things in our environment that are more likely to be uh, triggers to trauma and I I don't think we're even scratching the surface at an institutional level and that's probably because we are treading water trying to keep our heads above water because we're drowning in the amount of work that there is. What occurs to me is if if we're thinking about how do we modify the environment to prevent or reduce the incidence of birth trauma is that then a distraction from or a positive contribution to thinking about it in terms of modifying the environment in order to um, facilitate more positive birth generally well the, the two are in harmony aren't they if you think about the, the kind of environmental factors that that make it more likely that oxytocin is going to be rampant in a woman you know, all of those uh, environmental tweaks uh, will be reducing the chances that a woman experiences the birth as traumatic. You know, for example, the guarding of privacy, hmm. um, the managing of um, the level of lights in the room, all of these things. If a woman is awash with oxytocin, she is less likely um, because she will be in a state of relative well-being, she is less likely to perceive the event as traumatic. I think what I'm feeling slightly huffy about is that all of this is well known. That should be happening anyway. And suddenly the birth trauma people have, have raised their hands. And now it, it's, uh, I, I'm overstating this, aren't I? Now it's, it's a thing because the birth trauma. Yeah, well, it, it should be. It should be a thing anyway. Well, it should, but just like skin to skin, right? You know, like, like all all of these things that are a given, you know, they're kind of like there's enough evidence for us to know um, as far as we can know that these things are beneficial. We all know that um, initial skin to skin rates went up uh, when there was a when there was a, an emphasis upon auditing the rates. Well, also, but that, that skin to skin has 
um, become more more likely to happen. Um, that that's kind of emerged out of research into kangaroo care and premature and sick babies. So again, it's an example of us having to manage back into the situation things yeah. that actually would be would have been normal. Exactly, reactive rather than being proactive, isn't it? In a, in a way. You know, we're, we're reacting to outcomes that we perceive are not beneficial rather than just standardising care that would reduce um, these outcomes anyway, you know. Yeah, right. So we had another interview from Emma Swanberg because she has written a book that was completely relevant to this topic and it just happened to plop onto my doormat in time. Um, so Emma Swanberg has written one of the Why It Matters books, um, Why Birth Trauma Matters, and we managed to get hold of her as well. So hello, my name is Emma Spanberg. I'm a clinical psychologist and I work mainly with pregnant women and their partners um, and parents in the kind of early years of parenthood. Um, and I talk a lot with people around anxiety during birth, around difficulties after birth, and also issues like postnatal depression and anxiety, and just helping people through that transition to becoming parents. And you also, you're quite busy on the social media as mumologist? I am, yes. So I do two social media accounts. Um, and mumologist is my account, which I really set up just to raise awareness of common mental health difficulties in this time. I think a lot of people go through the same kind of things and people end up feeling like they're dealing with it on their own. So it just felt really important to create a space to talk about how common a lot of those experiences are. Um, and then I also um, run with my co-founder, Becca Moore, and our lovely team of other people, um, Make Birth Better, which is a, an organisation that we set up last year, um, similarly to raise awareness, but specifically around birth trauma and difficulties around birth. We're Birth Better on Instagram, and we have a website now, which is makebirthbetter.org. And who's Make Birth Better geared at? Well, it started off actually as a campaign that I did um, about two years ago now, which which was just based on a, um, a post that I did on Instagram explaining the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder after birth and postnatal depression, because those two things are really often confused. And mm. um, people who have symptoms of trauma after birth are often misdiagnosed with postnatal depression. And even though they kind of come out feeling like, oh, I know that that's not quite what I'm going through, it then becomes really hard to find a, a way to get the appropriate support. Um, and I think it can really turn people off and going back to seek further help. Um, so that post was really just around kind of helping people understand the difference. And I just got so many responses to that post from people saying, actually, I think that's exactly what happened to me. I don't think I was depressed at all. Actually, I think it was all around my birth experience. Um, and I then invited people to send me their stories um, of, of birth experiences that they'd had and, and analysed them and then just set up the website initially to kind of share experiences and, and raise awareness of what birth trauma is. Um, and then through that, I contacted or reconnected with Rebecca Moore, who's a perinatal psychiatrist, and she runs a birth trauma conference every um, And we just got together and had a lot of conversations around how difficult it can be having these kind of discussions in the birth world where often things are presented in a real kind of dichotomous way. Mm. Um, and we really wanted to provide a platform where we could hear from all kinds of different people, so both parents and professionals, 
around you know what birth is like for them what can make birth difficult what can make birth positive um over the past year that we've been running we've spoken to a lot of different parents and professionals and actually more recently our focus has been around campaigning for increased support for help for healthcare professionals so I think in all of the conversations that we've had, what we've really realised is that it's very hard for midwives and obstetricians and other healthcare professionals to feel compassionate when they're so burnt out and overstretched themselves. And so that's kind of where our focus has been more recently, that in a way we can't kind of hope to prevent birth trauma without also looking at how traumatised staff often are as well. Yeah, I was just looking at an article in The Guardian today um, we're recording on the 11th of June and it was from a health visitor just describing f- the five working days of her week. It's absolutely you know, incomprehensible really that we can expect people to do that kind of work and not have an emotional fallout. Yeah, it looks incredibly difficult, draining and just hard to be there for the parents when that okay. is making such a demand on you. Yes, and I think often what will then happen is that because you might know from midwife or a health visitor, you might know that you, you you might not necessarily be seeing that person again. It's very hard to then ask the kind of questions that you might want to ask because you don't know whether you're going to be able to signpost them on. You don't know whether you're going to be able to follow that up. So that's what we've heard a lot, particularly from midwives. That actually, it's very hard to have those kind of difficult conversations and just ask how somebody is feeling about their birth experience, for example, mm-hmm. um, because you don't know whether you've got time to really hear it and listen to it and follow it up. Yes, you can't just do that in five minutes. No, absolutely not. No, and and of course, as parents, we know that, so we don't we don't open up those conversations either. Mm. Um, and then parents feel unsupported. Yes, and and alone, you know, and kind of feeling like they have to cope with all of that, those kind of symptoms on their own, you know, feeling that maybe there aren't services that are there to to help them through that. And there's huge knock-on effects of that, you know, both for that parent, but also in their other relationships, you know, developing that relationship with their baby and and it can have an impact on their relationship with their partner too. It it does have a ripple, and I think that's really what we're trying to get across with Make Birth Better is, is that kind of the ripple effect that at the moment is happening in a sometimes quite a negative way, but that if we can make a change at at different kind of levels of that ripple, then we could see a really positive change too. Yeah. So you've also just published your book? I have, yes, Um, which is coming out on the 11th of July with Peter and Martin. That's why birth trauma matters. So what have you distilled into this book? Because the the Why It Matters books are, are always very condensed and concise yes they are which actually I think is really helpful just yeah. to be able to do something and, and get an overview um well it, it talks really about what trauma is I think with birth trauma there's a lot of misunderstanding um around who can become traumatized by birth um so it talks about what post-traumatic stress disorder is and also just sort of symptoms of trauma which is what most people are left with after birth so we think about a third of women are left with some symptoms of trauma after birth but it's more like one in 25 who would meet a criteria for a, a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's kind of defining that difference initially. Um, and then also just describing what you might experience if you do feel traumatised after birth. I think people can really, you know, sort of shy away from, from describing their experience as trauma. Um, but what we know from the research is that birth trauma is very much in the eye of the beholder. You know, it's very much around 
what somebody's experience is, how affected they feel by that experience rather than what actually happened. Yeah. Um, and then I just sort of go into some detail about what can help in recovery. So different options for getting support, things that people might be able to do at home as well, just to start to feel that they're recovering from that birth experience. So it's practical as well as giving the, the background and the rationale. Yes, and there's, and there's lots of stories in there too. So I've, I've used, I contacted again some of the women who um, wrote to me back in 2017 in, in that campaign that I described earlier. Um, and they gave me permission to share some of their stories as well, because I think that's really where the, you know, that's where the benefit lies for all of us is hearing those stories that I think have really been silenced for quite a long time. Yeah, and because we're sort of trained to expect birth to be unpleasant and painful and, and difficult. Yeah. We come out the other side thinking, well, that was awful, but I just have to suck it up because that's what it's supposed to be like. Yes. I, th- I, I, I sort of think there's two different stories now about birth, actually. I think that there is that kind of maybe more mainstream idea that birth is going to be difficult and it's an ordeal that we have to get through. But I think that what I hear more and more from women is that there's a kind of counter story to that, which which I think has started off as a very beneficial story that birth can be positive and empowering. Um, but I think in some ways, the way that that's sometimes presented um, is that that's something to aspire to as a kind of gold standard. And for some women, that can put pressure on them so that when they feel like birth hasn't gone that way, they're still left with those feelings of shame or failure. So, so sort of in both stories, actually, what is left with is a, a woman feeling like I feel terrible and I don't feel like this is how I'm supposed to be feeling. But you know, I can't. There's no sort of way of resolving that. It, it becomes something that women sort of take on themselves. You know, either as a well, this is what it was meant to be like. So what was I expecting? I just have to put up with this. Or well, I failed to get this beautiful birth experience that I was hoping for. So I still have to put up with it. And either way, there's a kind of difficulty in then talking about how do we improve things? How can we make things better for women? Very challenging for those of us involved in preparing people for birth. It is. I mean, to me, it it all comes down to support. You know, that actually we can prepare women as much as we want. But if the support isn't there on the other side, then, you know, we are kind of sending women and their partners into really difficult situations sometimes. But but knowing that means that we can then kind of galvanise a team, you know, a team of people who will be there for that woman, for a birthing person or their partner, so that they can come out of it feeling positive. I mean, I think what's really hopeful in the literature is that it's actually really not about the experience itself. It, it, do, it does so often come down to how well supported people yeah. felt during that experience. Yeah. I... Right. Then actually that's such a huge part of the process. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. And that's what I would emphasise for me is all about make sure you've got the right people and they understand you. Yeah, absolutely. And and if they don't, then look for other people. Yeah, yeah, quite. Get a, team, get a team in place. Yes, there's a lot of cultural change out there ready for us to tackle. Yes. And hopefully what you're doing, things like your website and the book are, are chipping away. Yes, I hope so. Brilliant. Such important work that you're doing. Thank you, Emma. Yeah, thanks a lot, Karen. Good to talk to you. Will we look at some of the news? Yeah, 
one that I put up was from The Guardian on the 12th of June and the headline was I was forced out of my job after having a baby then I was silenced by an NDA and this is about maternity discrimination in the workplace where women experience basically hostility hostile conditions that push them into leaving reducing their hours and things like that or making decisions that don't feel comfortable in order to go back to work full-time to please their employer I and NDAs have been in the news fairly recently haven't they the government are taking steps to outlaw them in their current in in their current form I can't believe it's legal to pay somebody to cover up law breaking no it doesn't sound it sounds like hush money doesn't it well yeah I I just think that's wrong yeah well they do it because people are willing to take the money right well, I mean, it's a complex decision, isn't it? If you're if you're in this situation where you've gone back to work and your conditions have been made basically unfeasible, and then they offer you money to stop going there, then <laughs> I think that the decision you're making there, you're factoring in all sorts of things like, well, I won't have to go and be in that horrible environment anymore. I'm not sure that re- restitution, where they reinstate your job conditions and you have to keep working for people who who have caused this situation, would be necessarily an, an actual realistic option yeah and, and i'm not sure about um the current state of legal aid so people would would maybe be put off litigating because they uh, couldn't afford it maybe um it came to my attention um because a, a colleague not not a colleague sorry a friend um nothing to do with the birth world had tweeted it saying that as a manager he'd had real difficulty fighting pressure from above to basically discriminate against women coming back from maternity leave. And then and it, it, it rang bells with me as well. I, I had a fairly difficult time going back and there were other people also making comments. Yeah, well, my, my, my stepdaughter um, has gone back uh, to being a physiotherapist, having had a baby, and um, she has had to work very hard to get hours that, that, that fit for her. Hmm very hard and when I was working in a secure psychiatric unit as a general nurse uh, I I remember a colleague coming back an RMN a a registered mental nurse who wanted to you know carry on breastfeeding and was therefore needing longer periods of time to express and she effectively got hounded out of the job really yeah I was um, still breastfeeding and I mean I think my son would have probably been less than a year old at the time. Um, and I was required to go to a meeting in London at 6pm with a colleague. So we we're about an hour's train ride out of London. Um, it's just completely impractical for... And, and at that stage, I hadn't been leaving him. I don't think I'd ever left him in the evening and not done his bedtime feed or his many other feeds. Yeah. It was just completely... And, and, and I was told very seriously you you have to do this it would be incredibly frowned upon if you say no you can't go because you've got a baby what did you do i went i needed the job i went it's not right is it no and it's you know there are always things that parents regret and one of mine is bothering to go back to work after but you know financially wasn't it was never really an option not to if if you've had um, difficulty going back to work after having children get in touch this is an interesting subject maybe one for a future episode i was going to say this is a future episode thing really um 
because of the exp- the experience of w- women generally and and the experience of women that work within the birth world because i'm i'm quite sure it's not easy going back to work as a midwife after you've had a baby yeah absolutely we can double down on the relevance there can't we yeah absolutely absolutely so anything else karen um, I just um, shared the Risk Project. Um, if you remember, we had Heather Tricky on a little while ago talking about her work for Risk, um, and they are doing a survey um, that they're interested in trying to understand and improve advice in pregnancy. So they are looking for people who've had a baby in the last five years or been pregnant in the last five years, um, and we've put their survey on our facebook page if people would like to do that i remember the episode a really in-depth discussion about how you balance the need to give kind of information because because the decisions and the choices are nuanced all right inside a service that is um so busy uh, it's just not easy. This is why decisions get boiled down to two options often. Is that is that the kind of stuff? Yeah, it was the one about um, health messages. And, and it's very much about how um, information is given to expectant families and new parents. Yeah, no, I get it. And we, I, I guess we should be encouraging our Facebook folk to share that widely. Yeah, do that. That would be great. Yeah, because the, the more respondents they get, the better the... Uh, the quality, if you like, of the data. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Brilliant. So, Mark, what has inspired you this month? Okay. A book. It's by Bernardo Castrup. And the book is called Why Materialism is Baloney. Okay. What do you like about it? Well, what I like about it is it's ex- it, 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 his underlying premise is a philosophy called idealism. Um. And this philosophy doesn't um, dispute or deny the findings of materialistic science, but it it seeks to uh, put a different frame of reference around it. So in a nutshell, um, his philosophy is that the whole of our experience of reality is occurring in mind that mind is the substrate of reality um, and not an epiphenomena of the brain. And, and, and were you reading this on the beach in Mallorca? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, uh, I, did, I didn't take it with me on the beach. I was on the beach in New York, uh, Mallorca. I was reading The Cloud of Unknowing, which is a book about uh, 14th century Christian mysticism. What is wrong with a nice novel, Mark? It's been a while since I read a nice novel. Oh. I think the last the last one was Harry Potter. I think the third in the series. I enjoyed that. This is a sad story. But but I do read these books like novels in as much as I when I'm reading them I'm thoroughly enjoying the content. You know, I thoroughly the the, the irony is, you know, this idealism um frame of reference isn't young. It's not new. Is it does make sense of a lot of the findings of current science. It, it the, a lot of the findings of current science fit within this way of perceiving our our experience of reality. But anyway, I am reading it. I am reading it for fun. Oh, it sounds like it. I've got a, Go a nice novel for you. Um, 
It's called The Memory Keeper's Daughter by Kim Edwards. It's um, It has some relevance because there is a birth and what happens at the birth is significant to the rest of the story. Um, and it's a, a very of its time birth, so quite interesting to read. Um, but that wasn't what I was going to endorse today. I was going to tell you about this box of funny little cards that I've got. Um, right. So we went to the Design Museum a couple of weekends ago and in the shop they have these um, boxes of cards it's called calm cards for serenity and it's from the school of life which is i think alan de borton's thing that he does and there's 60 little cards with a, a design on one side and then a, a a sort of some words on the other side and i thought oh they look interesting i might try using those with a group sometime and i got them home and read them on the train and thought these seem a bit strange so i'm going to just randomly pick one and read it to you okay all right, go all right. On this one says Sit alone in the kitchen and try to imagine what our planet looks like from the perspective of the star Deneb, located in the constellation of Cygnus, 1,500 light years away from Earth. Ah. So that's your task for the day. Try to do that. <laughs> well, that's a little bit tricky because I have no frame of reference no, for where those stars are. But if, if it had said, sit and contemplate the view of planet Earth from out of space... I could do that because I've seen pictures of of the Earth. Yeah, so I could do that, and that would have some effect, I think, because it would give me a different perspective. Would you like a different one? Yeah, go on, go on. Although, of course, of of course, I would know. I do know those pictures are made up by uh, intelligence services because the Earth is flat. Really, Mark? <laughs> go on, next one. I'm joking. Go on, next. One. Are you sure? Okay, um, the next one says, however bad it is, there'll always be a hot bath. I might just do a podcast reading these out. Uh, that's not a bad one either, is it? The only people we feel are sane are those we don't know very well yet. <laughs> right, I'm done with those. They're uh, interesting. I'm going to take them and I've got a peer supporters update in a, um, this afternoon. I'm going to see what they think of them. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the idea itself is a good one in terms of inventing your own. Yeah, there might be better things that you could use. Yeah, different planets to see the Earth from. I think that would be a place to go. Let, let's try that sometime. So that's sadly all we've got time for today. But the good news is that we will have another episode for you on the 25th of next month. Do keep in touch with us on facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And leave us an iTunes review if you haven't already. Five stars is preferable. Uh, or support the show on patreon.com slash Sprogcast. Uh, that's goodbye from me. And thank you for listening from me. Goodbye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.